Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello and welcome to another episode on the New Books Network. I'm one of your hosts, Dr. Miranda Melcher, and I'm very pleased to have with me today Dr. Andrew Monteith to tell us all about his book titled Christian Nationalism and the Birth of the War on Drugs, published by NYU Press in 2023. This is a really interesting book because it challenges the myth that many people, to be quite honest, myself included, think that the war on drugs, especially in America, is pretty recent, maybe from the Nixon administration around then. Um, But this book helps us understand a much more complicated, a much more nuanced and a much older origin story, really, um, that the war on drugs actually starts in the 1800s and has a lot more to do with religious debates with concerns about the soul and about civilization and has intersections with colonialism um, and is not really something that just kind of pops up in the middle of the 20th century. So this book, I think, does a lot of important historical work and makes contributions to a bunch of different areas. So Andrew, thank you so much for being on the podcast to tell us all about it. Great. Thank you. I I appreciate that. Um, So I'm Andrew Monteith. I am an assistant professor of religious studies at Elon University in North Carolina. I want to specify we do not have any relationship to Elon Musk. We predate him by about 100 years. Um, I feel like I kind of need to explain that now. Um, I teach in religious studies and American studies. And so the book that I've written here, it's kind of an extension of it started as a, a doctoral dissertation. Um, I had a, a project where I was working with a guy named Terrence McKenna, who is a psychedelic guru from the 20th century. I mean, he, he and his brother basically invented the technology that allows people to grow magic mushrooms in their basement. And so in trying to tell his story, I started to try to contextualize this in the context of the drug war. And in, in trying to put that together, I was finding these major gaps in my understanding, as well as some of the scholarship I was looking at. Because um, as you said here, I think Nixon is often credited with the invention of the drug war. And it's partly because he wanted it that way. I mean, he presented himself as the 
author of it. But this term war on drugs is in use by the 1910s. And he, in fact, is taking this much older framework that already exists and just rebranding it. And so in trying to put together this story about Terrence McKenna, I started digging into this stuff and finding that um, this goes back much further even than I had imagined. Um, and so that's kind of the, I think, a little bit about how this came into existence and, and who I am. Um, yeah. Great. No, that's a very helpful start. Thank you for um, kind of laying that foundation. I think it's not a surprise that lots of interesting books kind of come out of someone going, oh, I want to do this. Hang on a second. I'm trying to do it and something's not quite clicking. Let me poke at that. Um, and it ends up being a book. So to start our discussion about the content of what you've written, um, I'd love to start with the first word of the title, Christian, Christian nationalism. Um, Christian is obviously an incredibly broad word, right? Religion is a very broad word. So can you start us off? What kind of Christian, what kind of Protestantism, what kind of religion, what are you talking about? Um, what are you focusing on in the book within that very broad category? I mean, it's, it's a really good question, and there's not an easy answer. I think if I'm trying to explain this, what, where I would go is this. The United States, if we're going to talk about it as, like I'm, I'm painting with broad brushes here, there's a kind of Protestantism that is particularly embedded in American culture in the 19th century. It, it, it is in the 20th century too, but the story really starts in the 19th century when it's not just about, well, the majority of people are Protestants. It's that they are embedding this into a kind of every cultural framework that they can. And when I say it's Protestant, it's not that Catholics don't exist or there's not Jewish people living in the U.S. What I mean is that there's a kind of supremacy that Protestants have built into how they are thinking about American identity. And the boundaries here between what we might consider Protestant or what we might consider American in this context for them, there's any line that's there is somewhat invented. They think about these as really the same thing. And so they're telling a story about the United States as kind of this democratic project, but the democratic project itself is tied into how they think about being Protestant. Right? And so there's an emphasis, and I'm drawing some of this from Charles Taylor's Secular Age. Um, one of the things he notes is, look, there's this emphasis in this period on real religion is what you freely choose. In order for it to be genuine, you have to have a kind of sincerity to it. And so in the American context, what how that is going to end up working is that people imagine the denominations that may exist here. Right? We've got Presbyterians, we've got Baptists, we've got you know all kinds of different Protestants. They're thinking about themselves in a for for this to count for this to really be authentic, it has to be something that I signed up for and I chose myself. And so it doesn't matter if you were born Baptist, you might choose to be Presbyterian. That's kind of what makes it real. And so in that, they're gonna have some sharp criticisms of Catholics in particular. They think of Catholics as um, ritualistic. They think of Catholics as superstitious. They think of Catholics as loyal to a foreign monarch. And so in telling this story, 
they are thinking about the United States as not that. It is not just that it's Protestant. It's also not Catholic. And, and they're looking to some extent at history as itself the unfolding of like, God's plan for the world. And, and so when I say that, what I mean is this. We might think today about Protestants as favoring a kind of eschatology called premillennialism. And that's the Tim LaHaye left behind stuff where, you know, there's a rapture, everything gets worse. There's an antichrist who shows up. And after things can't get any worse, basically Jesus shows up, fixes everything and builds a kingdom himself. That's premillennialism. They're working almost exclusively, well, not almost exclusively, predominantly, I should say, with a model that we would call postmillennialism. And postmillennialism is a progress narrative. It's about, look, Jesus started a kingdom when he was here 2,000 years ago, and that kingdom is continuing to grow. Things get better. What Christians do in this model is they improve society, they improve the world, they improve culture itself, and all of that is sacred progress towards this perfect society that once Christians have built it, Jesus returns and rules it. And so post-millennialism, they're thinking about this as the unfolding of God's real moral structures for the universe. And in that, they see the United States as kind of the, the, the forerunner of this model. If democracy and free choice are the things that God really wants people to value, we can see this then um, ratified in something like the revolution, where we've got these kind of untrained guys shooting at a professional, well-funded army from trees and swamps, and somehow this works. They take this as evidence that God does, in fact, favor the United States, and the United States is his chosen instrument. You take something like the Mexican-American War, where it ends in 1848. There's this whole narrative about you know expansion and how this land should be used. And in 1849, they find gold in California. And so the narrative becomes, well, look, this was always here. The gold has been here since day one. The reason the Mexicans never found it is Catholicism. God was waiting for California to become part of the United States before this gold could be revealed. And now it's here for us to use because he's favoring our project and this kind of furthers his ends. And so in that, what we get is an emphasis not just on freely chosen Protestantism, but kind of the the value of concepts that cut across those Protestant branches. And so something like post-millennialism is one example, but there's a lot of moral norms that are like this, where they're thinking about something like um, monogamy versus plural marriage. So probably if you know much about the United States and religion, you may have encountered Mormonism at some point. In the 19th century, they're practicing plural marriage where one man may have multiple wives, but other Protestants in the United States are kind of horrified by this. They think it's the most immoral thing you could do. And so in this, they kind of all agree, look, this isn't just a Baptist thing. This isn't a Presbyterian thing. Monogamy isn't specific to one of us, it's non-sectarian. It is universally moral. The Mormons are kind of doing this weird thing that we need to stop. And they want to stop this because it to, it feels retrogressive to them. It's an example of how 
you know, society could slide backwards if they're not attentive to the instruments of civilization, to building the kind of post-millennial culture that God has kind of put the United States here to do. And so in this, they're thinking of themselves as non-sectarian. And that term to them would kind of signal something that to you and I might be what we might call secular. But I would argue what they're doing here isn't non-sectarian, which implies a kind of religious neutrality. It's in fact transsectarian. They're cutting across their different denominations and forming this kind of set of cultural norms that we could call Protestant or we could call in this case a Christian nationalism, the emphasis on the United States as an instrument of, of God. This is kind of what I'm going for with that title. Mm. And so all that to say, um, morality here becomes a really kind of critical part of what they're doing. They think of morality as a, a set of universal right and wrongs that transcend any individual denomination, and which we may not fully know, but we could reason out and find if we work hard enough. And they're going to say, look, if we look at all these different Protestant denominations, we have a lot of overlap in morality. What we're seeing here isn't some specific kind of religiously contingent morality. What we're seeing is, in fact, the universal morality that all people who are kind of sincerely devoted to Christian progress are going to find. And so in that, they're creating this kind of cultural, I guess, zeitgeist, for lack of a better word, in which this transsectarian morality that is at times uniquely Protestant is, is taken to just be a universal truth for everybody. And so I, I feel like I have perhaps gotten away from your question, Miranda. Could you remind me? <laughs> no, that's incredibly helpful. Um, and in fact, I'm going to kind of ask you a follow-up that extends it a little bit further because that really is helpful for um, understanding kind of the atmosphere, the context that this is happening in. Because as you said, right, at the time, Protestantism really was the dominant thing, not the only thing, but the dominant thing. And that's not true now. So it's worth remembering kind of how prevalent that was to understand the war on drugs shaping. Um, so you've explained to us morality, which I found very helpful to understand um, in the book for kind of putting all this together. One further term before we go forward, could you talk about how this group conceived of term the term civilization and how that feeds into what we're going to start talking about with drugs specifically? Yeah. So civilization... I mean, there's, there's so many different directions we could go here. Um, for them, civilization and progress, they're kind of the same thing. When they talk about civilization, what they have in mind is, I would say this, we've got this whole emphasis on something called the civilizing mission. And I think this kind of gets at where I think you're going here. Um, the civilizing mission for them is kind of a colonial framework in which there's some societies in the world that are civilized and some societies that are not. The terms they would have used in this time, which you don't use anymore for obvious reasons, they would have said, look, we've got some cultures that are savage or primitive. And the people who are civilized have this kind of moral responsibility to help those people figure out how to be civilized. But in this, they have to then kind of construct what is it we think is civilized. If we're going to teach these people to become us, what is it that we're teaching them? 
And so this rubric of civilization versus savagery becomes kind of a blank canvas on which to paint their perfect kind of culture. They're imagining a utopia around this. And that utopia is, in many ways, it's going to reflect those Protestant moral norms. And I should also clarify before I I get away from it and forget about it. um, They are thinking about morality as transcendent and uh, not contingent on anybody's personal opinion. Like there's a truth out there that they think we can find. I personally am not producing that kind of an argument myself in the book. So I'm really invested in uh, a definition of morality that I'm drawing from a feminist philosopher named Margaret Urban Walker, who talks about morality as kind of this thing we can observe. It's a set of practices that show what people value and what they care about, and which we may not fully agree with people on, but we could recognize, okay, the reason that they're doing the stuff they're doing is because they think of it as moral. And so for me, I'm kind of interested in this question of how morality operates as maybe a site of power um, and negotiation of what culture is going to be like, rather than me suggesting, look, it's really this transcendent thing. That's so tied into what civilization is that I don't, know if we can even really tease them apart. They think of civilization as intrinsically, like a self-evidently moral good. And if we're going to talk about civilization and what counts as civilized, we're going to talk about things that they think of as moral. So if we're doing civilization, we can't go backwards. It has to be part of this post-millennial progress. Um, yeah. Yeah. I think that's no. my answer. Yeah. No, that that's incredibly helpful. Um. I think putting all of these sort of terms together uh, and the thought processes, right? There's a lot going on here around um, thinking, around making choices, around um, kind of absolute right and wrong. And anyone listening to this so far, I think is going to have some inkling of how these things go together to create uh, what we are now familiar with in terms of the war on drugs. Um But I want to kind of draw out the line precisely because I found some really interesting things uh, that I wasn't expecting in drawing out that line. And I'd love to ask you about um, some of them now. The first being that we don't think of substance use or even substance abuse today as being bad for one's spirit. We think of it being bad for many reasons, but spiritually dangerous is not really a piece that we've kept, at least not that language. But I think if you're going, I'm going to ask you to explain kind of what that was. And I think listeners are probably going to go, oh, wait, maybe that is a bit more familiar than it sounds initially. Why was substance use considered spiritually dangerous? What was seen to be under threat from it? And to me, this is, I I want to thank you for the question, because I think it's to me, one of the things I felt most fascinated by as I started to piece this together. Mm. Well, as a reader, I found it fascinating too. Thank you. I appreciate that. Um, Here's how I would answer this is when it comes to substance use, what they think is spiritually dangerous is I introduce a term called biomoral in the book. And I, I know neologisms are kind of like, you kind of have to be more senior than I am to get away with it. And so I I don't know if that'll land or not. But the reason I'm using that term is they're thinking about morality as biologically centered in some way. So by the mid 19th century, um, we've got phrenology and this emphasis on 
like your brain is kind of the center of who you are. And that's somewhat new to them. Like this whole model of the brain being the center of the spirit is not how people always thought about it. As they're thinking with phrenological terms, I mean, it's a short-lived kind of pseudoscience, but it gives them the, the structures that they start to uh, think of with the, this drug war stuff. And one of them is this. Look, your brain can be damaged. And if you damage your brain, you damage both your ability to be moral. So these phrenological maps put at the top of the brain, like the moral center of who you are, they talk about spirituality being rooted there. Your ability to be religious is in fact a biological component of your brain. So if you burn that part out, you burn out your actual ability to be moral or to to be religious. So that's part one. They're thinking about alcohol, especially in the 19th century. But as in addition to alcohol, they're putting in opium, tobacco, uh, caffeine, when they become aware of caffeine, like they're putting all of this stuff next to it. Alcohol is going to be the dominant one. And there's reasons that they, they go that direction. But what they're imagining here is, look, the reason people who drink or use opium become what we would consider immoral is because they are causing damage to the biological structures that allow them to be moral in the first place. So that's part one. Part two is this. If we're using a Protestant framework of what it means to be saved, they think of salvation as a cognitive thing, that you become saved by what you believe. And it is by faith alone, if we want to go back to that kind of early Reformation mantra, what saves you is it's just the faith. There's nothing else. If you add extra stuff in there, you're inventing stuff that God never intended to be there. And so in that kind of a construction, if belief is the most central thing, you need a working functional mind that's operating in very specific ways in order for that salvation to take place. And so if we start introducing substances that are going to alter how the brain operates or how cognition works, you're kind of altering the landscape of salvation itself. That's the space where you become saved. So these are the two kind of ways I would answer that question. If they're thinking about substance use as spiritually dangerous, it's partly because it jeopardizes your ability to be saved, but also because it burns out your ability to be a moral person. Hmm. And this is where I think we can start to see perhaps some links with the story we might be more familiar with, right? If we're talking about phrenology, that has a whole bunch of eugenics interwoven into it. So we've got race and all sorts of evil hierarchies of race coming in. And if we're talking about kind of the importance of faith, pure faith, just faith, faith alone, that starts to sound familiar to some of the language of the later 20th century in terms of, you know, just say no, right? That it's as simple as kind of hold on to the faith and that's it. So this is what I mean when you kind of talked about this in the book. I was like, oh, wait, now I'm starting to see how this relates to the story I am familiar with. Well, that's um, it's really interesting because I had never thought about connecting it to just say no. I mean, you're, you're giving me some some new stuff here, Miranda. Thank you. <laughs> well, there we go. Okay, I didn't mean to interrupt. Yeah, yeah, I got excited. No, no, no please. Um, well, before we kind of continue the chronological journey, I suppose well, we're going to take a little bit of a further step. You mentioned in your last answer that um, these groups were putting together all sorts of substances, caffeine, alcohol, opium, 
all sorts of things together. And yet the temperance movement that kind of is one of the big organized things that comes out of this um, at first does seem to really focus on alcohol in particular. Why do they make that sort of decision pragmatically, spiritually? I mean, why focus so much on alcohol? I think there's two reasons why they focus on alcohol. I mean, if we go back to the earliest stuff that exists, we can go to the 1820s and they're publishing tracks on like, why drinking's bad, but they'll talk about opium and tobacco in the same book. Like they're thinking about these things together from the very start. But if we're thinking about where we see substance use becoming a, a commonplace thing, alcohol is like it's everywhere. People drink, like they drink a lot. And, you know, there may be something to their, they're proposing in the temperance movement that drinking is getting worse, that um, people are in fact drinking more and drinking harder and suffering more for it. Still technology improves in the early 19th century. And so it becomes cheaper and easier to make whiskey than it used to be. It's possible that there may be something to that, that argument about an increase. I, I don't know if we have good data that would measure that. But at minimum, there's a lot more people who are drinking than there are people who are using opium recreationally. And opium is used medically. There may be some folks who get hooked and continue to practice it, even though it's not um, necessarily medical at that point. But it, that's less common than somebody you know, holding up a pint. And so because the alcohol is more common, that's kind of where they put their attention. There's also more defenders of recreational drinking than there are defenders of, say, recreational opium. There's not a lot of people saying, yeah, you should go, you know, shoot morphine. And that's a great thing to to do to pass the time. People don't really make that argument very much. Um, There's lots of people who think drinking is really not that big a deal. It can go badly, but it doesn't have to go badly and we could enjoy it. And so for that reason, they tend to be drawn more towards focusing on alcohol because they feel like this is where we actually need to make an argument to people and sell it, but also because it's more common. Hmm. Yeah, no, that makes a lot of sense. Um, Thinking about kind of the problems that this causes, of course, now we have science, medicine, all sorts of things to understand addiction and how it functions. Um, They did not have science or medicine the way that we do now. And yet they had plenty of theories about addiction um, and treatment and how kind of one should respond, the community should respond, etc. You call these biomoral addiction theories in the book. Can you talk us through what they are and what sort of influence they had? So, Addiction theory is really kind of developing in this time. I mean, people have been familiar with alcoholism for ages. Like that's that's not new to them. But what is new is particularly by the later 19th century, um, they've refined opium into morphine. And it, it's just exponentially harder to get off morphine than it is to get off opium. And so they're finding, okay, look, these people who we've been treated, like the Civil War in particular, they're using a lot of morphine on the battlefield, right? People are having limbs amputated. They kind of need it. It's it's a, um, a really useful medical tool. But they're finding here that people who have used it this way, they've got free access to it. There's no restrictions on what you can and can't buy when it comes to substance use yet. And so we're seeing people who are hooked on it and kind of, you know, 
people die. I mean, addiction can go very badly. And so in this, they're trying to figure out, okay, what is actually going on here? And there's, there's more than one way that they might cut this. If we're thinking about biomorality, what I mean by that, they, um, one of the answers is this, as you decline, it gets harder and harder to make moral choices. So if you start fizzling, fizzling out the parts of your brain that make you moral, what you might see is that, okay, addiction is actually going to have a bigger hold than it may have at the start because you've got less ability to resist. I mean, you've kind of burned out the parts of you that let you make the moral choice. And in this case, sobriety and morality are going to be um, somewhat synonymous, right? So that may be part of what's going on. I think it's less, I don't know if I would say that they don't have science so much as they are trying to figure out some new problems. I mean, morphine hasn't been around. So I, I, I want to give them a little bit of rope for, for trying to figure out something new and not having it all worked out right at the start. Hmm. Um, Fair. I think I would also say if the question is how do they think about morality in relationship to addiction and treatment, they're going to really start taking an abstinence only approach because they think it is so morally dangerous to use. They don't necessarily think that you can be treated. Part of what's happening here is if we destroy the moral centers, a lot of people are going to suggest, look, there's no coming back from that. Um, if you are hooked, you're kind of hooked for life. And this, to, to some extent, I mean, we think about what addiction can be like for people who are uh, maybe stuck in it. it. The relapse phenomenon is one that we have in our present. We can, I think, recognize how hard it might be for somebody to to actually uh, recover fully. Like that drive to go back to this substance is it would have been true for them in the 19th century as much as it is, is for us. And so in trying to solve like what's going on here, one of the answers that they come up with is, look, there's a kind of a slavery that exists here. And it's very potent language to be talking about substance use as enslaving. In the 19th century, when this is a lot of this is happening post-Civil War, like, people have very strong feelings on, on what slavery is and you know, how, how we should approach it. it. It's not necessarily a metaphor when they say drugs are slavery. I mean, this term addiction that we use now, you know, we go back to early 19th century, they're using the word habitué. It's a habit. You habitually use opium. They switch to addiction because addiction refers to a kind of voluntary slavery. They're not entirely sure why it is that people become slaves to substances, but there's something going on that they think, look, this person is now kind of mentally and physically shackled to this thing that they would like to be free from, but for whatever reason, cannot be free from. Hmm. So I, I don't know if I fully answered your question. Mm-hmm. Have, have I, Miranda? Yeah, I think so. And again, I think there's some interesting kind of we can trace that thread to sort of why do we end up with things like just say no and there isn't an answer for, well, what if you said yes once? How do we support you? It's like, well, no, there isn't anything. Like that's that's it now, right? We can think about maybe some linkages with kind of how we treat people who are suffering from addiction and kind of how much agency they are or are not allowed, right? There's all sorts of these 
beliefs that I think we can, you're helping us understand where the hell they come from, <laughs> which is really helpful. I, I think if I can, you're reminding me that you mentioned eugenics not too long ago. And I think that may be worth thinking about here too. If we're talking about phrenology, it's a short-lived kind of phenomenon. People are really invested in the 1850s as we go on people dismiss it fairly like it it doesn't last that long but it it works alongside something called degeneracy theory where people are thinking about look an individual can degenerate they can move from a civilized state to an uncivilized they can kind of regress back to a, a diseased kind of unhealthy person but they think of that as culturally true too cultures decline, cultures degenerate. And so degeneracy theory takes a lot of the structures of um, of phrenology and they kind of jump ship. We lose the phrenological map of the brain, but the idea that morality is part of biology sticks around. And so degeneracy starts to, to become this framework in which we can recognize somebody is immoral by this holistic condition that we're calling degeneracy. And it's, it's multifaceted. So if we're talking about degeneracy, it's not just that somebody is immoral, it's that there's gonna be other things that are wrong with them too. If they have a cognitive disorder of some kind, like epilepsy, they're probably gonna be immoral. If they've got you know, um, webbed fingers, that's kind of a, a sign of degeneracy. And so if we see webbed fingers, we're going to start asking questions about, okay, what else is wrong with them? And so this becomes part of, like, this is the basic framework for eugenics, which we tend to think about eugenics primarily as a kind of legal sterilization exercise. Like, that's what it gets reduced to. But there's this whole other side of eugenics that exists that I think we really need to keep front and center if we're talking about the drug war, which is that people are actively thinking about this as a moral framework that applies well beyond any laws about sterilization. Um, Who's fit and who's unfit is going to have moral value to them. And so if we see somebody who's addicted, probably they're addicted because they are biologically deficient. If we start to see addiction as a sign of somebody's intrinsic inferiority. And in addition to this, we're going to see that, look, there's overlap between what we think of as a kind of cognitive, um, what we today might call cognitive disability. Like they're not, the word disability means something slightly different here in this period, but uh, what we would think of like um, epilepsy to them is probably the most profound of the the cognitive disabilities. They think epileptics are going to murder their family. Like the ways that they talk about epilepsy would surprise people now. They think of people with cognitive disorders as the most likely candidates for addiction. And so if we see somebody who is um, visibly disabled, we're going to start wondering how else they may be immoral. What happens here is we get this whole way that we respond and treat each other like the kinds of ways that we look at each other are a, it's moral terrain. This is where I I find Margaret Urban Walker so helpful is the ways that people signal to somebody else that they've stepped out of what's accepted to them. That that can be signaled through visual cues. It can be signaled through how we speak to them. 
they, those kinds of social norms, they, they enshrine what it is we really think about other people. And as social beings, they, how other people respond to us matters. And so we start seeing, okay, what might it be, what might be the experience for somebody who is stuck in addiction in this time? What do they think of themselves and what do other people think of them? Those are going to be related. And one of the things that I, I found when I did this and I started writing up the book is there's so few addicts who actually write something that I could cite because they don't want to tell people that this is going on. It is not a freedom to narrate your addiction. It is exposure. And it, it marks you as a defective kind of person who doesn't really belong in society. The, the stuff about addicts, if I have anything close to a firsthand account, it is being filtered through a doctor who is writing about them. Like there's, there's, I'm sorry, go ahead. No, that, that makes a lot of sense. And I'm, I'm wondering if we can expand it in a way because that what you're describing is so incredibly pervasive throughout society it's not this idea that kind of drugs and substance is sort of one thing over here and it doesn't relate to all these other things right you're describing something much more all-encompassing so does that extend beyond the kind of interpersonal does that extend to for example colonial projects or potential colonial oh, concerns yeah. yeah i mean that's it's a really i think helpful direction to go here because if they're thinking about this as a biological problem i mean they're working with race science in the late 19th century that's like we look back and we're like okay what the hell were you thinking like there's no merit to this but they're thinking of it as science and so when they start looking at filipinos or um, people living in Africa, they start thinking, okay, how are these folks biologically inferior? And if they're biologically inferior, do they have the kind of moral structures that they need to really navigate something like substance use? If we expose them to opium or alcohol or tobacco or nicot um, nicotine is tobacco or, or, or these other substances, peyote, what we're doing is giving them the weapons for their own self-destruction. And so as, I mean, colonialism obviously predates this period. Like a lot of, I, I think the science that backs up colonialism is kind of a narration of what they already kind of want to be true. And so if we look at the arguments about civilization that are coming out of, say, cultural anthropology, that societies move from savage to um, barbarian to civilized, they're applying that structure in they're kind of their colonialist ideology. And so if we are the United States and we're trying to figure out, okay, look, we've, we have the Philippines in our, our purview now, like at the end of the Spanish American war, the United States is now the colonial sovereign over the Philippines. What's our duty and responsibility to them? And it can't be opium. If we allow them to have opium, like what we're doing is allowing them to, to destroy themselves. And so a lot of that is going to be tied into like these notions of race. I mean, it's, it's in some ways inseparable. And this is where the Christian nationalism part, I think becomes helpful for thinking about the drug war in particular It's with something like the Philippines. It's not just that we have some, some duty to civilize and that stands independent of religion. They're thinking about, uh, civilization as a Protestant, the morality of Protestantism inflects that. It is that. And so if we're going to civilize the Philippines, 
what we have to do is teach them real religion. I mean, a lot of what's happening here is a, an attempt to walk back the Catholicism that they see embedded in like, the remnants of Spanish colonialism. They, they want to get rid of that stuff. And in that, if we're trying to encourage like proper cognition and progress and like these kinds of um, racial survival, they, they want to remove drugs from that context. They, they think of that as antithetical to their project. Hmm. That makes a lot of sense, given what you've explained to us already. And in a similar vein to the kind of, we might look at the Philippines and U.S. actions there and not think of it as being necessarily about religion, but actually, clearly it is. Um, if we move forward just a little bit in time, you talk about in the book um, that after World War One, after the creation of the League of Nations, this is the new international organization that, and one of the things put into their remit is an international war on drugs. Again, this might not look like something that has much, if anything, to do with religion. And yet, there seems to be very much a Protestant thing going on here. Can you explain that for us? I would love to. Um, it is, and I, I, I want to give a shout out, I think, to Carolee Burnage's book, um, a peaceful conquest. I mean, if you want to think about the League of Nations in relationship to uh, kind of this transsectarian Protestantism, it's a really good source. She did really good work with this. This and it informed a lot of how I was thinking about this too. I, I think to answer your question more directly, there is this guy Charles Henry Brent, and Charles Henry Brent is an Episcopalian bishop, and he's. Canadian. He, he ends up moving to New York. He identifies as American. He's really well connected. He's got friends in high places everywhere. He ends up becoming the missionary bishop to the Philippines in 1903. And in this, he is, he's thinking about what is his duty as like a staunch advocate of colonialism. He thinks about this as eschatologically significant. He's a post-millennialist. He thinks about progress and the approach of the kingdom as the same thing. He's thinking about, okay, what responsibilities do we have to the Philippines? And so he in particular is really worried about opium. And so he writes Theodore Roosevelt, uh, who he's just friends with, um, and says, look, I mean, here's what I think is going on. I think we need to find some kind of international consensus if we actually want to halt the, the spread of opium and opium addiction. Like that isn't something that we can do on our own. We really need a global kind of model for this. And Roosevelt writes him back and says, yes, I agree with you. Let's do this. And so they, they form in 1908, a, it's, it's kind of the early stages of what's going to become the international legal framework for the war on drugs. They send Brent. Brent is the, that he's the president of this, this convention in Shanghai um, he's really driving a lot of what's happening here. That They have no plenipotentiary power at this particular conference. So what comes out of it is a commitment to a second kind of international meeting, which is going to happen in The Hague in 1912. Brent, again, ends up being the American representative par excellence here. He's helping to write these treaties that end up becoming the very foundation of all international drug law. The Hague Treaty is the first agreement that we see between 
colonial powers who really have a lot of sway over the globe at this point. In 1912, most of the world is is colonized, right? And so the the British representatives aren't super excited about this initially. Um, they don't necessarily like the idea of control. Partly it's because there's so much money coming in from opium in India. The, the Dutch have kind of similar uh, ideas. Like there's a lot of money to be made off of you know, drug traffic. And, and so people aren't initially on board, but he kind of forces them into a corner where it's hard to defend opium use. Almost nobody thinks about it as morally progressive. They might think about it as morally neutral or something that's just going to happen. So if it's going to happen, we may as well make money off of it. But nobody's really easily able to defend opium use as just a a self-evidently good thing. And so he kind of wrangles these, you know, other representatives into a corner. And what we end up with is a commitment from, you know, Britain, France, the U.S., um, the Netherlands, China. These, these folks are agreeing in treaty form. Look, we have to monitor who's making opium and how it's being sold. And we have to, you know, keep tabs on it. We have to try to do something about illicit traffic. And so before they do anything else, like that's kind of the first level of it. Here's where that ends up featuring in the League of Nations. You know, this treaty that starts in 1912, they're kind of negotiating it through 1914. And by that point, we've got World War One. Because the people who are signing on to this treaty end up be on the victorious side of World War One. What they end up doing is shoehorning it into these peace treaties at the end of the war. And so in order to get peace, you basically have to sign on board with the Hague Treaty. And what that means is that most of the planet at that point has ended up, you know, one way or another as, as participating in this treaty. It, it, initially, it ascribes control of this to the Netherlands. But, you know, as they're thinking about this as a more international project, they decide, look, we've got this League of Nations. It's experimental. Why don't we shift control over to them? And, I mean, it is an experiment. And if we want to say, look, the um, the League of Nations is not intrinsically Protestant, I think there's an argument for that. Like, I think somebody could push on that and say, I, I could see why they would make that argument. Where I would say it becomes interesting here as well, though, is that they end up using Protestant missionaries as a spy network, which I did not expect to be the case. If you start digging through the League of Nations files that they've got at the archives in Geneva, the people responsible for the opium control are writing these missionaries and saying, look, we don't have good data on who's trafficking it and how. If you see people trafficking this, if you see like these illicit networks, can you let us know? Could you help us in a what's essentially a kind of PR campaign against narcotic use? Could, could you be our mouthpiece here as well? And missionaries are largely in favor of this. They've been clamoring for opium to be banned for a long time because, again, they think about it as a salvation question. And so we end up with these missionaries around the, the world who are writing into the League of Nations to tell them what's going on, but also um, disseminating the kind of 
ideology about drugs that is, you know, coming from the League of Nations. So where's the separation there of what's secular and what's religious? I mean, I don't know if, if it's possible to really draw a line that's going to be neat and fixed. Hmm. Which is absolutely fascinating. That's something I certainly did not realize about the League of Nations. Um, so that alone, I think, is a really useful contribution. But of course, that's just one of the questions I'm asking you. Um, for my next question, I'd love to kind of move back to focus on U.S. domestic areas for a bit. Um, you've just explained kind of how loads of countries in the world end up falling under this Protestant conception of drugs and its dangers. You also talk about how really like all children, right? Like anyone who kind of goes through a certain amount of public schooling in the US um, also gets this message. So, you know, countries and children, that's kind of the whole world. <laughs> you give two examples of this that I think maybe aren't always linked because they're called different things and they're decades apart and yet seem to be kind of similar um, can you take us through temperance education and narcotic education week and to what extent we actually might think of them almost as a stage one and stage two? Yeah. Um, so we get in the, the 19th century. I mean, there's this Christian temperance movement that's eventually going to evolve into what we call prohibitionism. At some point near the later part of the 19th century, they start to recognize that, look, there's a lot of Protestantly specific, like stuff in our messaging, and not everybody's on board with it. We think we can make an argument against alcohol that doesn't require that kind of religious devotion or religious commitment. So, what we want to do is maybe start presenting scientific arguments for why alcohol is really kind of bad for people, why it's detrimental to your morality, to your body, to culture. We can make those arguments without making it about Christianity specifically. And so we've got this organization, uh, the Women's Christian Temperance Union, who major player in American politics in the later 19th century. I, I don't know if there's a good analogy that I could draw from today. Like what they're doing in that time is somewhat unique. They build this entire wing called their scientific temperance branch. And what there's, I mean, this is the Women's Christian Temperance Union. Christian is in the name. They think about this as a Christian project. Scientific temperance is meant to be a kind of secular version of what it is they're doing. And because they think that, I mean, it gets messy. They, they would say they are not trying to impose religion on people in the schools. They, they, that would be their position. I would say as somebody looking back at what they did, okay, they're absolutely doing that. And, and I think most people who are looking at education in the U.S. in this time would recognize, look, there's a lot of religious stuff happening. Whether they call it that or not, it's there. And so if we're looking at what they're doing with scientific temperance, they build like the legal structures that require schools in the U.S. to teach specifically the dangers of alcohol. This is about the 1870s, 1880s is really when this starts to, to kick off. What they're requiring is that schools um, teach this, what's essentially a kind of moralized narrative about what alcohol does to a person. And it's often racialized too. I mean, they describe a lot of stuff in this, this uh, very um, racist terms. But where I'm getting to is, is this, is 
if this is the 1870s and 1880s, when they are teaching children to, like, here's how alcohol destroys you as a person. Here's how it ruins your morality. Here's how it wrecks democracy. Here's how it endangers everything about our culture. Those are the kids that 40 years later are adults that pass prohibition in the United States. So this argument that, that Francis Willard and Mary Hunt of the Women's Christian Temperance Union are making, that if we can win over the children, we can long-term end alcohol use. They may have been right about that because those are the kids who end up you know, passing prohibition. So if we fast forward to the other part of your question, you asked about Narcotic Education Week. And I, I want to pause on that because I think that's almost entirely been forgotten about. I mean, if you Google it, you can find stuff on it, but I never heard about this until I started digging through archives. What Narcotic Education Week is doing is basically the same thing that the temperance education movement did. So we have this guy, Richard, I'm sorry, Richmond Hobson, who is, he is a Spanish American war hero, um, briefly a congressman, a prohibitionist. Um, he's like Brent and many other Protestants invested in a kind of progress narrative where Christian civilization and the United States in particular are moving us towards that kingdom. And he's on board with that, but he's also on board with the idea that, look, we don't have to say that in order for it to count. We could have a secular language that we frame everything in, and it still does the same thing because progress is progress, whether we add the, the Christian part to it or not. He's looking back to scientific temperance and saying, look, this worked. If we want to end drug use, we need to start doing this in our schools with drugs as well. And so he presents, like he basically creates his own nonprofit organizations, the International Narcotic Education Association and the World Narcotic Defense Association. And he also at one point has a world conference on narcotic education. He, he likes institutions. He likes being in charge of stuff. And so he kind of builds this role for himself as a spokesman for these different organizations who's interfacing with the media and the public and people don't really take him seriously at first. And that's partly because if you look at some of the stuff he's saying, he doesn't always seem to get his facts right. Um, he tends to exaggerate a bit. Uh, and so people who know what's going on, who are actually kind of you know, lifelong uh, students of the what they would have called the drug problem, they're aware that he's kind of inflating things and that a lot of it is spin. But if you're just an everyday person, you don't necessarily know that. And so if somebody's coming to you and saying, look, I'm president of the International Narcotic Education Association and the World Narcotic Defense Association, you might assume that that person kind of knows what they're talking about. And so the media listen to him. They reproduce the stuff that he's claiming, you know, at face value, verbatim. And politicians, it's, there's nothing to really lose as a politician by saying you oppose substance use. Hey, nobody is going to, it, you're not going to lose voters by saying you want less addiction. And so in that, what Hobson is able to do is to generate a kind of PR campaign against substance use that's specifically and very self-awarely being put through the media and put through politicians. And one of the things he really wants to do with this is to get people focused on children and schools. 
And there's two reasons for that. One is that he thinks of children as particularly vulnerable. There's a security narrative here about um, there are shadowy cabals of drug drug manufacturers, drug vendors who are sneaking into the United States and selling drugs to children. And the reason they're doing that is partly about money, but also because they don't like the United States and they want to see it destroyed. And so if they get to our children, they kind of undermine the fabric of what the U.S. could become. And so he's offering this this narrative and many people are buying it. The other is that if scientific temperance did in fact kind of lead to prohibition, what might teaching narcotic education to kids in the 1920s do? And if we're looking at what happens, I mean, he starts narcotic education week in 1923 in Los Angeles. It becomes a national thing and then an international thing. This is wildly popular. You know, it may be forgotten about today, but I mean, he gets letters from Franklin Roosevelt, from the Vatican, from Mussolini. Like people are writing him to talk about how great narcotic education week is. And, and so this kind of global phenomenon where we spend an entire week of our school year teaching kids about the dangers of drugs. I mean, we go back from 1920s to the 1930s. That takes us 40 years later to the 1960s and 70s. Nixon grows up with this. I mean, he's from the Los Angeles area. And so he would have had narcotic education week in his childhood background. So would Daryl Gates, who is the, the creator of the D.A.R.E. program. He was a chief of police in Los Angeles from, I forget when he comes in, but definitely by the time he starts D.A.R.E. in the 1980s. It, this is his background too. He also grew up with narcotic education week. So we see this model has survived into our present day. And there's virtually, there's really almost no scholarship that I've found on the creation of the D.A.R.E. program. I don't know why there's not anything on it, but I, if there is something on it, I don't know about it. Um, it seems really likely that what Gates is doing here is modeled off Narcotic Education Week, but without any scholarship on it, I, I can't actually prove that. I'm, so I'm going to suggest it and say that we should think about it. Yeah, fair enough. I mean, that's this is the first link we're making. And who knows, maybe someone listening to this will go, ooh, I'm going to go investigate that. I would so, love if they did. Exactly. Um, as a penultimate question, obviously, in that answer particularly, but also really throughout this discussion, we've been drawing links between this older history that you're uncovering and a war on drugs that we might be more familiar with um, today and more recently. But looking at this kind of overall and given how much you've looked into this, what do you think are some of the strongest links between the current war on drugs and these origins that you're writing about in the book? I mean, it's a good question. And I think for me, the, the stuff that seems most meaningful to think about is maybe more abstract. I, I think a lot of the time when we talk about the war on drugs, we start thinking about legal infrastructure or bureaucracy or like the different kinds of regulations we may have. And that, I mean, that matters. Like I'm not suggesting that that isn't something we should think about. But to me, I think the kind of cultural norms that we operate with, like that's really where there's a long shelf life on some of this stuff. The kind of moral disgust that people have of addicts in the late 19th and early 20th century, like that is still kind of circulating. It, 
if we, and I'm, I'm blanking now as to which scholar mentioned this, but somebody working on contemporary drug war stuff, they, they happen to note in passing that somebody who is an addict is often unlikely to tell their doctor that they are an addict. They don't want to reveal that. Even when it's clearly medically relevant information, it is still private. Why is that the case? Why would somebody be be so hesitant to share that with somebody who kind of needs to know and where you have like a legal, at least in the United States, a legal protection of patient doctor confidentiality. And I would argue that part of why that's happening is that there's a shame that exists if you are an addict. It is not something that you want people to know about. Where did we get the the norms that allow for that shame to exist, where that becomes this kind of, I'm a broken person, or I'm in some ways deficient or defective? Where did we get that idea from? And I would say like that is coming from like the structures they're building in this early war on drugs. That to me is where it has the most teeth because that's not so much about I mean, who ends up in prison. That I think is a worthwhile question, but there's that kind of question of how you live with yourself that I think is more potent. And I think that's where I would, would direct it. I would also say the security infrastructure is one that has a long shelf life here. I mean, so Hobson is, I mean, he's a Spanish American war hero. He thinks in military terms. There's already people talking about a war on drugs by the 1910s. He really wants to see this become a security thing. I mean, he wants the army and the Navy involved. He wants it militarized. And as somebody who by the later 1920s and early 30s is actually being taken seriously, and Harry Anslinger, who ends up being in charge of the um, Federal Bureau of Narcotics when it starts. He and Hobson, they like each other a lot. They get along really well. They, they both want to see a police infrastructure that will discipline and um, I, I think actually make it a real war. Like that's what they want. And we have that. I mean, if anything, the war on drugs has, has grown. It hasn't um, shrunk from this. And if we look at how that operates, it's not a metaphor. I mean, the DEA has these kinds of shadow wars that it fights in other parts of the world that no other part of the federal bureaucracy could really get away with that. The DEA has these special privileges because drugs have been sort of modeled as an enemy in themselves that has to be stamped out and that we need a kind of martial infrastructure to do. So to me, those are the two that really have like the most longevity to them but I mean, that's quite again, persuasive <laughs> thank you I, I would say here's where that we need to think about religion is where do we get the kind of moral framework that leads to that first part of it where does that moral framework that treats addicts as shameful and um kind of a security threat to the very fabric of our culture where does that come from that comes from these Protestant norms about what progress looks like and how we're going to build a kingdom on earth. Like that's right. where it develops. 
Right. And how how people should react to things, right? It's very much an idea of it's a personal choice and a personal failing, which doesn't take into account anything systemic, right? It has this kind of magical idea that everyone is able to make the same decisions. In a biological phenomenon too. I mean, we think about addiction theory, it hasn't completely lost that phrenology. Like the idea that if you take drugs, you will be less moral is like, that's still there. And I also, just because I know we probably don't have a ton of time left, I, I kind of want to draw attention to drugs is an invented category in its own right. If we're talking about substance use and what counts as a drug, it's it's cocaine and cannabis and heroin are all they all do very different things to your body. Well, and caffeine, remember that was in your original yeah. category of things they were concerned about. And they're talking about caffeine in the early 20th century. I mean, the government thinks that this is, in fact, a kind of a dangerous thing. The guy in charge of what is an early form of the FDA, he treats caffeine as a poison that will destroy children and the very moral fabric of the United States. And, and yet today there's coffee shops where you can go for not very much money, kind of anywhere, and buy a cup of coffee. But you cannot do that for cocaine in the same sort of coffee shop way. Right. And there's there's no restrictions on it, right? I mean, we don't have coffee control as far as I know. Yeah, you don't have prescriptions where you have to go to a doctor and get them. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, exactly. Well, clearly we could keep talking about this forever, but um, I will probably let you get back to your um, work in a moment uh, with only my final question. This book is available. People can go read about all of this that we've been discussing. Is there anything you might be working on um, now or next whether or not it's a book whether or not it's on this exact topic that you'd like to give us a bit Mm -hmm. of a preview of yeah so i would say there's a couple things i'm working well i i'm probably trying to bite off too much i've got more projects than i have time for the two big ones um i'm writing a a textbook for rutledge that is called religion and power that's kind of about how um we might think about those two categories together so that's, that's one of my bigger projects the other one is this is in looking through the drug war stuff, I started to find this eugenics project where there's this kind of moralization of the body, but also disability. I mean, if we're talking about, you know, biomorality and the ways that they think about it as, as kind of overlapping disability, that if you are epileptic, you are a danger to everybody around you because you could snap and murder your family. You can't tell right from wrong. You end up in these um, hallucinating states where you are uh, delusional and murderous. Like this is what they think is going on with epileptics. In this, they start to try to figure out, okay, how do we control that? How do we stop having epileptics or what they called feeble-minded people? Like that's the language that they use at the time. And so they start building infrastructures to kind of handle this. And we, we think about where we, I think people tend to talk about eugenics as a sterilization legal project, and that is part of it, but it's not the entirety of it. We end up with these really commonplace um, institutions that are explicitly eugenicist, where they are essentially taking uh, kind of like the model of an Indian reservation and building what they call Um, epileptic colonies or schools for feeble-minded children. And these epileptic colonies in particular are interesting to me for a couple of reasons. One, 
they have a kind of um, moral policing internal to them. They want to make sure that people who are epileptics are who they think can't handle their own morality just because of biological biological degeneracy. They are trying to um, set the terms for them and help them achieve what little morality they think is possible for them. So they're going to segregate people into different bunks based on gender. So they won't have any kind of sexual contact, they think. Um, they want to keep them working. So these are working farms, basically. Um, people are put to work to keep them not idle. They, they want to make sure there's no idleness. And they're also going to uh, think about it as a way to take epileptics or feeble-minded children off the hands of their parents, particularly in the case of, um, I, I think, what they're calling feeble-minded children. So somebody could be sent to an institution at five or six and die there eight years later. Like, people live their entire lives here. And as I started looking through this and these epileptic colonies in particular, which every state has pretty much, like these are really ubiquitous. I'm finding stuff that I don't know how to explain. And like, for instance, if we go to the records for um, something called the Craig Epileptic Colony in New York, you know, in the 1920s, they, they love to publish records. Like they like a lot of bureaucratic stuff. They publish their death records every time they put out one of these reports. And about 25% of the people who are dying. So it's, you know, if we've got about hundred people who die in 1923. I think 25 of them die from something that they call epileptic exhaustion. I've got no idea what that is. I sent a medical historian who works in epilepsy an email. I said, can you tell me what this is? They said, I, I don't know either. I don't know what people are dying of in this context, but there is something going on here where people who survived epilepsy into, until they got to this colony are now dying under this condition that seems to be killing quite a few people. I don't know what's actually going on here, but exhaustion isn't fatal. So I'm, I'm not entirely sure what to expect. I, I'm suspicious that it may actually be a cover-up of suicide. And, and so I think that may be part of what's happening. But I'm also really interested in the moral framework that people are living under here and, and developing in relationship to eugenics in terms of being fit or unfit. That's the language that they use. And so there's two ways that that works. One, I'm interested in this question of shame. You know, I mentioned this in the context of addicts. There's one that exists for um, what we would now call disability as well. And, and so I've just been recently reading this book, Defective in the Land by Douglas Bainton. And I like some of the work he's doing here. I mean, one of the things he notes is people who are deaf and grow up in deaf schools, there's a campaign to abolish sign language. They think of signing as ultimately like a kind of savage behavior and they want people to be civilized. They want people to speak and hear language. So even though these people are deaf, they're insisting sign language is going to be off limits. They try to prohibit sign language in all the schools for the deaf. And so people who grow up in this context, feel ashamed to sign in public later on. This is one of the things he notes. And so there's an example here, I think, of where we could see like the kind of how the moral frameworks of something like disability could affect real people. And it's going to be really methodologically complicated to tease that out, but that's really the kind of work I'm interested in. One of the 
uh, one of the other things that I think is interesting here is this. People think about their own fitness as a positive thing as well. So for instance, somebody who thinks of themselves as eugenically good, I'm not defective, I'm at the top, they do things like go into these tents at fitter family contests at state fairs in Kansas and Arkansas and sit with somebody who then gives them a metric for how fit they are. And they're tracking people's religion, their politics. They say, okay, you get a B plus in your dental. You get an A on your cognitive fitness. And people are signing up their entire families and getting a kind of pedigree for their own kind of um, moral uprightness that comes out of this. And they're writing out their own family medical histories and mailing them at their own cost to eugenicists who are trying to build the records that will help them build this this perfect American race. Like this is kind of the, the model. It's a racial project, but it's got all this other stuff in it. And so anyway, I, I think I'm I'm trying to go on longer than I probably should for a project that's in its infancy. Um, but that's what I'm excited about at the moment. No, some really interesting questions. Um, I'm very curious to see what comes from them and all of your investigations. I'm sure there's going to be plenty of surprises. Um, I think so, yeah. Yeah, very much so. And of course, while you are doing that investigation, listeners can read the book we've been discussing. Again, titled Christian Nationalism and the Birth of the War on Drugs, NYU Press 2023. It's just come out. Andrew, thank you so much for being with us on the podcast and helping us put all this together. Thank you. I really I appreciate you um, asking the questions and caring enough about the book to to reach out about this.